listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Hansel podcast series, uh, hosted here by the Skylight Podcast. Uh, my name is Mick Koleski. I am the podcast producer and co-host, um, joined, as always, by my co-host. Maddie Gobo, events manager. And we are joined today by... Sydney Lopez, bookseller extraordinaire. <laughs> <laughs> and Eve. And by my friend Tamara, who's been with me for the past week. Hi. Hey. Hello. Welcome, Tamara. Uh, welcome, everyone. Um, so I'd like to start off the podcast by saying this isn't going to be our normal hand-sell podcast. I don't know if there was any way that we could make it a typical hand-sell podcast, given the state of things going on in the country these days, particularly Los Angeles. I think we are all emotionally affected pretty deeply. And I'm not sure that we could do the typical like friendly banter into what we're reading this week into interview that we usually do. If you're expecting that, I'm sorry, we just couldn't give it to you this week. Um, but there, there's just more important things going on uh guys how are you how are you feeling what's how are you feeling after this uh week of civil unrest not an easy question to answer (laughs) (laughs) we've all talked about how impossible it is to answer the question how are you uh Mm -hmm. since the pandemic began but it's like even more impossible now because uh every day there's a million new things that happen that we have to process um and be like vocal against and that's like the exhausting part is that we're all having to like protest about against these things and they're all just piling up but it's like important to not be silent and use your voice i feel like a lot of people are like learning to use their voice for the first time and that 
as a process, you know, because some people aren't comfortable using it. So I think it's like a collective process too. Like everyone's like getting comfortable with the roles that they're taking on in a collective change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, and I think um, when we were, you know, towards the beginning of the the shelter in place um, order because of COVID-19, um, I feel like there was just sort of like this this general malaise and ambivalence about how to feel because we're all in our homes and everything's very bizarre and our government was failing us in the same ways that it's failing us now, particularly the ways it's failing Black people um, and Black trans people, but it was easier to ignore with a sort of invisible airborne virus, but now the virus is visible and that virus is police. <laughs> mm. And we have them on video killing people. I mean, Black Americans were dying at a much higher rate um, from COVID-19, just as they die at a much higher rate from police violence. And um, yeah, I mean, these are, these are symptoms of, of the problem. And I, I, feel, I feel exhausted, but I feel like I actually do know how I feel, which is just really angry and really sad. <laughs> Um, so when people ask me how I am, I just feel like saying, I'm really angry and I'm really sad. (laughs) (laughs) Which, which is basically like the equivalent of saying good now, because like, oh, that's like the standard of what you should be, Mm -hmm. honestly, like if you're not angry and sad about what's happening going on right now, you, something, you're not paying attention, Mm -hmm. honestly. Have you guys been, uh, I mean, if you I think we talked at the beginning of this episode about not needing to be out with us if you don't want to be. So maybe we'll cut the segment, but have you guys been protesting at all in LA? Yes. Uh, I went to a protest over here in West Hollywood on Saturday. So the protests, I think, uh, in, a, in a fairly genius move here in LA have been focusing on kind of wealthier neighborhoods, white neighborhoods, mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've been uh, downtown LA, which has been pretty thoroughly gentrified. They've been over here in West Hollywood uh, and Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I've pretty much, I live right next to West Hollywood City Hall, and I've pretty much been underneath police helicopters for a full week. Um, mm-hmm. We've had we've had crazy curfews over here. We had a 1 p.m. curfew on, I think, Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, so we couldn't go outside after 1 p.m. So it, I... I normally would have gone out searching for the protest, but this time I didn't have to. It came straight to me. It was right in my neighborhood. Um, and my partner and I walked down uh, to the, the march at Pan Pacific Park, um, which was really incredible. Patrice Kohler spoke. Um, we, did, we said all the names as, as a crowd of thousands of people. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a crowd of thousands of people saying the names of uh, people in remembrance, but I, I can't think of anything more powerful. Um, and and then we marched uh, down Melrose uh, and went towards Beverly and Fairfax, where we were met by uh, police. And the crowd over the course of three and a half hours was um, united. We were taking care of each other. People were handing out bottles of water and snacks. Um, even the homeowners along the route were cheering for us. The cars that passed were cheering for us. It was just this incredible sense of like 
the LA coalition. It, this is what LA really looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course, you know, once the police showed up, everything went to hell. <laughs> um, and, and I was there when I saw it change. I saw the police uh, snap and start hitting people with batons. Um, I saw them start shooting rubber bullets and I saw the crowd um, respond and I saw the organizers within the crowd telling us how to keep each other safe, um, even in the face of this kind of outburst, un unwarranted outburst from the police. Um, people were telling us to walk, don't run. They were showing us the way um, around the cop cars to get you know, out safely. Uh, they were still handing out water. There were medics within the crowd. Um, I've never felt so taken care of by a mass of strangers. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, so I haven't been able to get out to another one since then, except for the one I got caught in on my drive home last <laughs> night from the store. Um, I got kind of roped into a car parade, which was amazing, uh, and which I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't get home without being part of it, which was fine with me. Um, but yeah, I would say if you haven't been out there uh, and joined one of these protests, you should because but this is this is the real Los Angeles. This is the real city that we live in, and um, you should be part of it. What about uh, you, other guys? Have you guys been out at all? And if you just want to say I'm not comfortable answering, please just do so, and I'll be sure to to cut this segment out. I went to the first one in um, I think it was like one of the first ones, like last week or maybe like a week ago now. Um, and it was, it wasn't like big, it wasn't that, it was like really small, um, but already, um, I saw kind of like the beginning of their tactics very clearly, and that kind of gave me a precedence for like what was, has been happening, and I've seen so many people say the same thing, which is like, you know, when you are in these protests, it's just important to stay together because the police will try to use separation tactics. Um, and that also is very telling of how they're operating and what their intention is, which is to divide, um, you know? So, but it was really beautiful to hear um, that account of your experience on the West side. Cause I had a lot of friends that went there too and they all said the same thing. And I think seeing that firsthand for a lot of people, when you see it, it changes you. But um, you know, with all that being said, people should definitely go. All of them in downtown have been really amazing. And a lot of my friends are, you know, taking the time to be active, to be re people of resources. Um, I have a really good friend who's like setting up the protests, the sign table out there so you can go and make your own sign. And, you know, I've seen people be like, I'm gonna be donating kits to the homeless, like Venmo me five, like, you know, so people are really like taking, making this collectless like community, making it part of the community in a big way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I went to the one downtown two days ago. I think it was on Wednesday. Um, I don't know, time is weird right now, but uh i it was like a nice coincidence because uh someone that i went to college with lives on the same street as me so as i was about to leave i saw them getting into their car and 
I just like yelled at them like with my mask on like like we're still in a pandemic so Mm -hmm. we're all wearing masks and like even entering into each other's spaces is like an act of defiance or like solidarity at the same time so it's just like are y'all going to the protests and they were like yeah so they gave me a ride there um so that was sweet within itself and uh yeah we we like stuck together for two hours um and it it was like it was great to see like such a big turnout like the only issue i had was when they like started chanting like peaceful protest or like the the uh protest that i went to the day before they like everyone had kneeled and then started chanting like for the the police to kneel as well um and that i like that point i like got up and walked to the back because i was like i can't i can't be part of this um but i think the way that like everyone is collectively growing and learning from this experience um I feel like at this point, people know not to demand the police to kneel or to to like hug them or like embrace them because it's just propaganda and used against them after that. And there's so many examples of it now on Twitter and on the internet that I feel like hopefully those demands aren't being asked for in a protest uh, that occurred, like, in the protests that occur today or tomorrow or, like, the next week. But, yeah. The best thing that I think I saw on Twitter was someone say, like, did you see Harriet Tubman, like, hug slave owners as she was, like, bringing people to freedom? Um, using that as, like, a parallel for, like, why, like, you know? Yeah, don't <laughs> hug your oppressor, don't. Yeah. The, uh, the Onion had um, a pretty brilliant headline that it was a police kneel in solidarity against the police brutality that they will commit one hour from now. Which happens. No, it's funny because it's true because I mean, we've literally seen, and just to highlight your point, Eve, about not wanting to give police officers that photo op which is what it is mm-hmm. because a lot of them have turned around it within hours and assaulted peaceful protesters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, go ahead. Sid. I, uh, I went to a protest, I think on Wednesday downtown and it was peaceful and we started at city hall and did a, a, a few mile loop circling back to city hall and the streets were lined with police, armed to the teeth, and um, like these National Guard Army men um, with like assault-style rifles, um, sort of corralling us in. And I was just thinking, what what are they thinking? Watching us go down the street, like we're walking, where it's peaceful, we're we're chanting, you know, and it. Um, and I, I, I just sort of realized it's just like this huge cognitive dissonance because what America and, and its collective psyche, like police are so firmly like entrenched in that, 
when when you look at our media and you look at our our movies and our TV shows like Die Hard, Terminator, like all these things, and it's like that's what these guys are thinking. They don't care mm-hmm. that we're peaceful protesters. They have created this like grand action hero narrative in their head, and that's what they're doing. And it's so fucking psychotic. You know, they like it doesn't matter what the people are doing. They are playing the hero in their own head. And that's why they can do this because it's us versus them. And they think that they're serving and protecting. And it's just like this, it's, it's this cognitive, cognitive dissonance that this entire country is built on Mm -hmm. this white supremacist, racist violence that has somehow convinced itself that it's moral. And it's also heavily funded. It's like, there's dollars to back up this cognitive dissonance. It's just to protect, protect property and like the wealthy elite. And yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I wanna get to that, that whole issue of funding later on when we talk about actions that we want to push our listeners to. But uh, Sid, you, you know, you're talking about sort of like this, this fantasy that it seems a lot of cops have about what their jobs entail and what they, what it gives them the freedom to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a question for you guys as a group because I, I have experience with it. Have you, have you guys grown up or known personally anybody who grew up to be a cop, who grew up to be a police officer? Yeah. Mm. Um... No, but I do have an experience of going to the police academy that was block away from my high school. I don't know how I ended up there, but I think my dad took me there and they forced me to do like a workout routine with them. Oh God. And I, and they yelled at me and like, I was like, one, I'm not even, this. I don't support this. Like, I don't know how I ended up here, but you're yelling at me as if I'm not a human. So I'm going to leave. So I like walked away. <laughs> And the one thing I learned was <laughs> that there's a police academy right by my high school that <laughs> all these people are, like, all these kids are going to, and that I was, like, n- never going to interact with the cops again because of that. Yeah, well, that's where they recruit, and th- this is why I bring it up. I-, I did not grow up in Los Angeles. I grew up in, like, this rural town in upstate New York where that was, like, like uh, marine worship and like army worship and police officer worship were like all intertwined bless their hearts and like i went i went to high school with people who ended up joining the very renowned annapolis naval academy and would come back and people like oh i heard I, i heard you got to shake president obama's hand what was that like and he would say things literally this is verbatim uh it was pretty cool but he's still in n-word though um that's a direct experience that i had and this is the problem i think like a huge problem with the way that police departments are handled because these are the kids that go in to law enforcement well quote unquote law enforcement because i think as we've seen over the past week we can't really see them enforcing the law more as like 
enforcing their own like wet dreams about what be like state sanctioned violence is mm-hmm. you know uh we've seen too many videos of cops dancing in anticipation at the prospect of hitting someone and that's a look that i remember seeing in football which is like you know fine that's like (laughs) it's a catharsis in and of itself when it's in a controlled environment but like when you put those that energy out into the streets and you say don't worry they deserve it that's the sort of culture that i know that the kids i grew up with admired and i know that's the kind of culture that they're fostering in police departments today so that's sort of why i wanted to bring that up and ask mm-hmm. if you guys knew anyone like that because those are the kids that that i grew up with and I, you know I, my uncle is also a police detective and i think honestly he was uncomfortable with a lot of techniques and the blue wall of silence is a real thing where cops commit brutalities and then endeavor to cover them up from within themselves um and he had an early retirement but you know that um, i do want to talk about the culture aspect because i think uh sydney you brought up that in our culture in, in american culture we we love media about cops that lionizes mm-hmm. cops and and yeah. makes them into heroes and i think because we're in la where a lot of that media gets produced um, and because we as booksellers are culture sort of adjacent workers, um, this is something we can really like sink our teeth into. You know, I, I hear a lot in the book industry about how, you know, stories can change the world and how reading, you know, engenders empathy and all of this stuff. But that works both ways, right? Like mm-hmm. you can tell stories that humanize people and you can also tell stories that dehumanize people. You can watch media that you know, challenges your worldview and you can watch media that reinforces it. Um, and I think uh, you know, the role of this podcast is for us as booksellers to kind of talk about um, you know, what we're seeing and thinking about in the culture. And, and right now I think it's really interesting to talk about how can we change these narratives? How can we identify these narratives that um, make being a cop look so fun and cool and awesome uh, and, and, you know, and trap young people like Mick knew uh, because that, you know, they weren't getting all of that, those ideas from, you know, the police department directly. Like that's, right. that's permeating yeah. the culture. That's well, everywhere around them. Right. Well, yeah, well I mean, let me let me let me stop you there and say that that's not also not true because I know that cops do come in and do say shit like, "Don't worry, like if you can like rough people up." Like sure. I know that that's what police <laughs> that po- police recruiters say. Um, and I also want to point out that it's not only like the diehards and you know, uh, it's it's there's a whole genre of rogue cop. Yeah films the lethal weapons and mm-hmm. the dirty harrys like the cop who won't play by the rules he just wants justice that like you know i think encourages like like you said like encourages people like people growing up to be like oh as long as i think it's okay i can commit violence well i mean that i mean the way the way we fetishize um police and force 
um, is 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 just like so thoroughly entrenched in our culture, and and the the idea of like that rogue cop sort of harkens back to the original idea of like American exceptionalism and manifest destiny. It's like, mm. oh, there's this one rogue cop and maybe he's doing things outside of the book or without the rules, but he's doing it for good, which is mm -hmm. the same ethos that we take when we invade Iraq or we, yeah. uh, you know, we, we, in, we send the CIA to Central America to like topple regimes. We're doing it for their own good. And even if we're not playing by the rules, we're, we're trying to defeat communism or we're trying to install democracy. We're trying to give these people liberty, but it, it, it's just totally ass backwards. And it's um, this media fetishizing um, beyond the sort of glamour, dirty, hairy rogue cop. We also have like the Fargo cops, like Francis McDormand and Fargo, where they're just sort of affable, bumbling, like Chief Wiggum types, or well, um, Francis McDormand is not bumbling. Okay, let's let's be clear. <laughs> yeah, let, let's let's put some respect on Francis McDormand. And also, I mean, I'm I, I'm I'm completely guilty of like um lo like loving these narratives. Like most of my favorite shows are like BBC police procedurals, like Luther, where Idris Elba is like exactly that kind of dirty Harry Copper. He's like a little cuckoo in the head <laughs> and he right. but he does it because he wants to save the girl from the rapist and he wants to stop human trafficking and he wants to do these things but he like shoves people through glass you know and it's like um it's so easy to get to get sucked into these narratives because um they can be glamorous or they can be funny but it's like you don't always stop and think about like what systems of power they're mm -hmm. upholding like what like this is you know this is the superstructure that's upholding the structure um so yeah I don't also, know. like the positive like narratives that are enforced by like oh like like solving or like protecting rape victims and like putting like rapists in jail or like that's all like a utopian vision of what like a law system yeah. should do but like in reality it's the other way around where like victims are kind of ignored, rapists are protected. Like, I don't know. I've just been seeing a lot of like tweets about how like none of that usually happens. Like it's always the people who speak out who get um, like affected more by it. But, yeah, which, yeah, which is awesome. kind of, why we are now having the national conversation about defunding police which is something that i think would have been unthinkable like two weeks ago yeah yeah and that's that's a great transition into i think what the meat of this episode should be and that's what what do we do what do we do about it how do we because i think it's i think it's very obvious that police reform is not an option because yeah. ever since Michael Brown, uh, there have been motions, and I think for the most part, probably well-intentioned ones, to address implicit bias within police departments that has not worked, like flat out, has not worked. So I mean, if you can affix, where do we go? If you can affix cameras to people's chests and they're still brutalizing people on camera it's like very clear 
that there's not really anything that can contain them. And also I fell into this camp, but when people were like, abolish the police, I'm like, what are we going to do with serial killers? What are we going to do with rapists? What are we going to do with blah, blah, blah. Um, and what it really is, is a failure of imagination to think that the mm -hmm. only way of keeping people safe, the only way of, of keeping people healthy is our punitive measures. You know, like what, what would it look like to imagine a world where we, we um, allocate resources to prevent, um, preventing these things from happening in the first place? Like, mm -hmm. it, you know, I was talking to someone and I was like, you know, if all the money that we were giving these police departments went to communities and everyone had access to safe housing, healthcare, education, food, mental health resources, how much crime do you still think would be happening? Obviously some. There are just yeah. some shitty bad people in the world mm -hmm. um, that no amount of help can really help, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But if people weren't worrying about eating or where they're going to sleep and just had access to good education, like if they went to public schools that were funded and had access to arts and like didn't have to apply to fancy magnet schools just to get like the bare minimum, um, what what would what would it look like? What would our society look like? How much policing would we need then? You know. Yeah, and, and just to sprinkle a statistic on what you said, because you mentioned the allocated resources to the police. Right now, as of as of right now, I think the the police have around three billion dollars in funding from the city of Los Angeles, give or take. Yeah, which is fifty four percent of the LA city budget. Right. Which is insane. And and Gar and Mayor Garcetti um, has, <laughs> I don't know if, I, if I'll say buckled, more like slightly hunched his shoulders and... I think you have to have a spine in the first place to buckle, <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> you burnt, Eric. Uh, uh, cut $150 million from that $3 billion to divert into community related projects and the creation of like a civil rights department which we didn't have that um <laughs> which is a step in the right direction i'll say that but not enough i think we yeah. can agree i read this really quickly um to your point earlier um there's this tweet that said like pessimism is a tool of white supremacy they don't want to be imaginative about a world free from genocide, wealth hoarding, patriarchy. In the moments you think revolution is impossible, it's important to remember that that way of thinking is inherently violent and supremacist, mm -hmm. um, which I think speaks to the point which you were making earlier um, and talks about something greater, which is, you know, people are fighting for a whole different kind of living and existing in a world that we haven't even we're not there yet and that change can be very scary for some people because they get stuck in com like comfort um, and I think that's also a really big aspect of it is learning to be like what what privileges am I comfortable with that I'm going to have to give up mm -hmm. um, what are things that you know I may have to like reassess and be like oh this benefited me in some way but it doesn't benefit the collective so I have inner work to do as well as outer work um, yeah yeah, and can you drop who uh, who tweeted that just to give credit? No name at no name. <laughs> oh no, the great Chicago <laughs> rapper. 
artist no name yeah, yeah. No name. <laughs> she she is quite a leader and also like literally appropriate has a pretty dope book club that she runs mm-hmm. yeah uh, awesome no name okay. yeah it's um, um i that makes me think a lot of the um attacks leveled against bernie sanders during his campaign when they're like go bernie your ideas are so pie in the sky where are we gonna get all this money and it's like the money is there yeah. It's, not, it's not like Bernie's like, let's go, you know, print out a bunch more money to pay for Medicare for all. He's like, let's reallocate and divert these resources from things that are killing people to things that will bring health and stability to people. And I think, um, I think the people that are so invested in telling us that these ideas are um, utopian and unrealistic and, and communist or whatever sort of J. Edgar Hoover bullshit they're trying to make us believe um it's it's just ridiculous and it's a failure of imagination it's 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 a it's a it's a comfort with the status quo um and what what is incredible to me is that um you know even white people will want to defend this status quo to death when it not that it matters not that this is the crux of 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 what's happening right now but it affects them too it's like why are you so invested in a system that also doesn't really give a shit about you you know like why aren't you willing to have like the backs of your marginalized and and you know black brothers and sisters like why do you want to hold them down in a system that also doesn't give a fuck about you well why are you out here to the uh the exceptionalism (laughs) myth i mean yeah Yeah. that that is like such a disease that white America has utterly succumbed to. We all yeah. think, well, I, I guess I can't say we all, but many, many white Americans think I'm going to be the one that makes it. I'm going to be the one that rises above. I'm going to be the next Elon Musk or whatever. Yeah. And that, that's just all that that does is close you off to the community and the resources that surround you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's also like white supremacy. I mean, like, I guess if I can answer my own question, but it's like, the reason why is, you know, white supremacy gives white folks like this illusion that if they don't have much in this life, at least they have power over black people. At least they're not black. And that is like the foundational, like read one chapter of a people's history of (laughs) the United States. And that's Uh literally like in the first chapter, it's like white people were given white supremacy so they wouldn't challenge the status quo because if they don't have anything, at least they're not black you know and it's it's just um yeah but i mean this is, sounds corny but by keeping us divided they keep us down you know uh-huh. and um i don't know i know that sounds really bumper stickery and i don't mean to <laughs> but <laughs> um yeah it's just, i buy it yeah we we buy into these these myths and and perpetrate this violence because we can't be bothered to be bothered so and it's also not like not only white people can uphold white supremacy like very true who like aligns themselves to be proximal to whiteness like prioritizing property prioritizing profit like that's just supporting white supremacy as well and like that's part of like reimagining your future and like reorienting what your like goals are like 
there's so many like people of color who are like wealthy and like choose to like prioritize their wealth over like any sort of collective mm-hmm. effort or I don't know like it's the uh I'm not black I'm OJ yeah syndrome. like thinking that you have somehow ascended beyond the concept of race mm-hmm. because of your class and not just your identity has been you know is is less than your brand and mm-hmm. I think we've seen that with like Ellen DeGeneres having dinner with George W. Bush in the Dallas Cowboys press box and stuff like that. This idea that wealth will, you know, solve those problems and it doesn't. Yes. Or even more uh, scary is like the fact that Epstein was hanging out with both Clinton and Trump. And like, yeah. There's all the way to the top. Class solidarity. And, and again, like the whole like debate that's going on with like, why wouldn't you vote for Biden? He's like better than Trump or whatever, but they're literally like both horrible. <laughs> <laughs> what did, no, what did, this is, sorry, I'm, I'm going to get, yeah, we're going to get into this for a second because I just think it's hilarious that Joe Biden comes out and in, in the middle of all of this, when everyone's like, we need, we need a leader. We need someone who's going to tell us what we need to do to be safe. And Joe Biden comes out and says, we need to teach cops to shoot unarmed people in the legs, not the heart. <laughs> and like sat back and held his arms out and was like, I did it. <laughs> is, there, is there anything more, more Democrat than that? I mean, come oh on. My yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Man. Yeah. Like the, he is just like a walking unforced error. Like it's, incredible what yeah yeah sorry i'm just like been pounding my head against my desk for well back to eve's point um about i mean i'm i'm half mexican my mom's half black half white and my dad's mexican and it's really interesting the amount of anti-blackness presence Mm -hmm. in a mex um for me my personal experience mexican culture Um, I went to a high school that was predominantly Latinx um, and Asian, Um, very few black kids, some white, some white um, kids. And because I'm mixed race, um, people don't know I'm black unless I tell them, which is obviously like um, a privileging factor when it comes to like being racially profiled and stuff. Um, And I just remember when I would tell people like, oh, yeah, my mom's half black. Um, one kid literally was like, oh, does that mean that you really like watermelon? Um, just really, really, like, so not e- so, so trite, so stupid, but still, like, oddly painful when you're, like, 15 mm-hmm. and, like, figuring out your identity and you're, like, you know, being mixed race in and of itself is, like, its own, its own bag, but, um, yeah, I mean, there are so many cultures that are dedicated to upholding anti-blackness. Um, Being and, yeah, and yeah, most of my Mexican family looks pretty white. Um, and um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of um, Latinx people, I think, kind of revel in that proximity to whiteness. And um, yeah, I think... Uh, 
And I think that's why on, you know, places like Twitter and stuff, there's a lot of people that are really careful and a lot of activists that are really adamant about drawing that distinction between um, black and um, the terms black and POC, people of color, person of color, mm -hmm. um, because they get conflated a lot and um, it's not the same experience. Like, yeah, like a lot of Latinx um, people um, experience like forms of brutality and racism, but are not necessarily as um, targeted as like black people in America. And um, I mean, like, yeah, even in Latinx communities, like you have lighter people making fun of people with darker skin or people mm -hmm. with more um, indigenous features, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it's also like the inability or like the, like what tends to happen is that a lot of Latino people tend to overlook the fact that there is an Afro-Latino population. Mm -hmm. Like, anti-blackness is so rampant that they like overlook that um yeah it's just like erasure yeah i was gonna say is it sort of like erasure as a way to step up i'd like to go back real quick to to actions that we'd like to encourage people to take is there anything that they can do to address these problems right now um i will say uh just from a very very easy and local point of view you can check out uh the unlearning racism book list that we have up on the skylight books website um currently all, a lot of the books on it are backordered because mm -hmm. all of a sudden everybody wants to learn how to be an anti-racist how interesting <laughs> Um, but it's a good place to start and you can get a lot of these books as audiobooks or you can get them from your library um, if you have not done the reading yet now is absolutely the time to start reading. Right. Um, another thing I will say is um, getting involved with the People's Budget LA, uh, which is um, just a movement to get City Council and Garcetti to um, radically rethink how they're allocating their money. Uh, they're doing a lot of really cool actions right now. They have special tools where you can click a link and it'll send an email to everybody on the City Council uh, from from your account so there's there's a lot of really easy ways to get involved in um, local politics right now mm -hmm. and, and let me say that if we don't have the book in stock that we also on on Twitter I know that we uh, in our pin tweet if you read that thread we have posted a list of black owned bookstores that you could purchase from as well because we appreciate your business we love it we really appreciate it, but that might be a, that, that's our recommended alternative right now. Also, don't buy your books about racism from Amazon people. Yeah. Don't, don't do, like, do, if you don't realize the inherent irony, just like Google, like Google for like yeah. two seconds before you do that. Mick, do you really think that people listening to this bookseller podcast are ordering their books from Amazon? You <laughs> would, you, let, let me tell you, let me tell you, you would be surprised. I think if we did a poll, you'd be a little bit surprised and a little bit sad. All right. Well, if you, <laughs> if you are, if you're listening to this podcast and you are sneakily ordering books from Amazon, we see you and you're in trouble. <laughs> I sense your presence and I'm not going to rest until it is expunged. Just stop ordering from Amazon. Shame Jeez. on you. <laughs> and uh, I think we can kind of shout out that whole Twitter thread, right? As a good, as our recommended resources for 
action and um, ways to support Black Lives Matter right now, correct? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I would suggest everyone to make a Twitter because that's where <laughs> I'm getting all my media from. Uh, like a lot of reports from actions. I don't know. It's just, it's very good and informative. And I would also suggest um, finding ways to organize at local levels. Um, and you, it could even be as small as like finding ways to unlearn racism within yourself, but also finding ways to like restructure your work environment to uh, kind of tackle like the the ways that the ways that your work environment are structured that also kind of perpetuate like whiteness or like center whiteness like that yeah i don't know how to phrase that well but like talk to your coworkers. um i would also suggest uh emailing the la public library to end their contract with the LA Police Department um, because it's possible, like the, it's, a, it's a recently new contract that they've had. And I think the University of Minnesota has already set an example by ending their contract with the police department there. So it is possible. And that's also like a small local way to defund the police. <laughs> Um, to aid to the larger goal of defunding the police um, throughout the U.S. Um, yeah, yeah, one last thing I'd like to say about the defund the police thing, because I, I know Sydney did touch on the, well, what are we going to do about law enforcement then? And I think it's important to note that, that advocating for defunding the police doesn't mean getting rid of any sort of law enforcement or, or protection. Uh, it just means probably not calling police officers in to handle mental health issues. It means not calling them in to deal with perhaps the homeless community. Basically just stripping away their responsibilities so that maybe, ideally, <laughs> we don't have any instances of police brutality. Um, reallocate those those resources and create new forms of law enforcement uh from the ground up and i think before you say that's a pipe dream it sounds like the city council in minneapolis is considering that right now um, also just stripping them of their sort of paramilitary gear that's really unnecessary yeah um just like really basic like yes um reallocating some of those responsibilities you know it's like instead of having all of these police, um, we could have social workers that deal with like intimate partner violence or people with struggling with mental health or people that are unhoused. Um, police aren't equipped or meant to do any of those things. Uh -huh. um, so I don't, you know, so it, it doesn't really make sense that they come in, I mean, with batons and guns, how are they gonna help someone? I mean, in Patrice Culler's um, memoir, when they call you a terrorist, um, she talks about her brother, I believe, who um, deals with schizophrenia 
and how he was beaten and jailed because they didn't have be, you know because he was a black man acting erratically and no matter the that you know despite the fact that the family was like he um deals with schizophrenia he didn't have access to his medication he was jailed and abused um that's not a police problem that is a social worker mental health professional um situation and so defunding the police means um giving resources to people that can handle those problems. I mean, in those institutions as well, um, grapple with uh, issues of white supremacy. You know, in hospitals, black women um, are likely to go untreated um, for, you know, reported issues. Doctors take their pain less seriously. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a larger systemic conversation, but um, if we start with the police and the people that are like very actively killing people on the streets, that is a start so yeah uh, yeah i i and i want to read a, a quick quote from alex vital who wrote the end of policing um he had an interview with npr and and he said uh, part of our misunderstanding about the nature of policing is we keep imagining that we can turn police into social workers we can make them nice friendly community outreach workers but police are violence workers that's what distinguishes them from all other government functions they have the legal capacity to use violence in situations where the average citizen would be arrested that's what they're trained to do essentially so when we say defund the police and reallocate those resources we're basically saying stop using the police to handle nonviolent situations because that's not what they're meant for nor what they want to do essentially so yeah. All right. Um, and if I could just make one more point. Yeah. Um, I I just want to say that all the people that um, are uncomfortable and scared and inconvenienced by the protests and take to social media to actively um, decry that, I just want to say to you, good. I'm glad that you're uncomfortable. I'm glad that you're scared, and I'm glad that you're inconvenienced. Um, <laughs> because racism is pretty scary and inconvenient. So instead of crying about it, read a book. We're a bookstore, order one from us, <laughs> order one from someone else. The End of Policing is a free PDF from Verso Books. Am I correct? Yes. Um, so learn something and stop whining. Thank you. <laughs> be, ready, be ready for like a whole new world because it's happening, whether people like it or not. And I think it's time and use your platform. I feel like right now is the time, you know, whether you have 20 followers or 200 or 2000 followers on Instagram, like share information. Um, that's really important. You know, um, people, I keep seeing people say like, I can't wait for social media to go back to normal. And it's like, it's never going to go back to normal. Like people want change and that's going to happen. Um, and I think that that's an amazing thing. Amen. Yeah, I agree. Uh, all right, guys. Well, might want to wrap this up. I think we've been going on for close to an hour now. Yeah. Uh, I love how you said it was going to be a short episode. <laughs> I, you know what? I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I lied. <laughs> um, it, one quick question. Is there any book 
if someone is like confused and someone is like, I don't understand what you're talking about. I don't understand these issues. Is there one book that you can write? There's not one book that's going to solve everything, but one book you want people to start with. Mm, Beloved by Toni Morrison. If that book doesn't help you understand racism, I don't really know what will. Um, I know maybe it's not like a, a book that deals with this particular moment, but um, if anything, it shows that a lot hasn't changed. And I think it's, it, it's just one of the most profound books in terms of learning um, what racism and anti-Blackness is in this country. And it's beautiful, so. I would say uh, Citizen by Claudia Rankin. Um, just an incredible document, apart from being beautiful poetry. Um, it's, uh, I mean, you, you can't read that book and not come through feeling like you've been punched in the chest, like, and you should feel that way. Um. Uh, I was just going to say carceral capitalism. Um, it just shows how, like, the police and, like, prisons are just profit-making machines, and it's all unnecessary. Tamara, do you have one? Um, algorithms of Oppression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the, the book club that Mandy's hosting also. Uh, that's still going on right now. Oh yeah, can you, what's that again? Yeah, the Mandy Harris-Williams is hosting a book club on algorithms of oppression. Um, all the information is on the Women's Center's website and they're also uh, offering summaries of each chapter so that you can be part of the conversation for the book club. Um, And I think like what happened with the Blackout Tuesday squares is a perfect example of how algorithms can be used to oppress marginalized voices. Um, So it's pretty... Well, what what happened there? What was that for anyone who doesn't know? Basically, everyone decided to post black squares on their Instagram and then tag Black Lives Matter, so that the whole feed for Black Lives Matter was blacked out. There was no information. The whole feed for everyone's Instagram was blacked out. So it basically disabled social media or Instagram for a few hours. Um, But I think people quickly learned and started to use like GIFs or like K-pop stands started tagging uh, hashtags that would normally be used by like white supremacists or cops. Oh my God, I saw that. In order to flood their uh, So yeah, people are learning. It's happening uh, day to day, but yeah, algorithms of oppression is a good one. That's a great one. And I'm gonna keep pushing between the world. It's just very, very important. To- uh, and for all of you that don't know what a K-pop stan is, um, it is a super fan of a Korean pop group. Um, <laughs> I got to tell you I that I, I saw Blue Lives Matter and White Lives Matter trending on Twitter and like my stomach drops out and then clicking the hashtag to find out <laughs> that K-pop stands have just taken it all over and drowned out any racism <laughs> with, their, with their fan cams was yes. really... What is really? a fan cam, though? That I don't know. 
Okay, so fan cam is like when you um, make like a slideshow or a collection of videos of who you stan and then add like a song onto it. So it could be like a Nicki Minaj song or like oh. a Beyonce song, um, which goes to show like everyone's <laughs> role. Like these fan cams, these K-pop stands, you know, like I think the Dallas police was asking for video footage of protesters oh, yeah. and like the k-pop stands flooded their shit with like fan cams like and it goes That's amazing like, you know everyone plays a role like it's i think i saw tinashe um and correct me if i'm pronouncing her name wrong um she tweeted something about that and she just was like all right stands like twitter stands your time has come <laughs> <laughs> now it's like everyone is just whatever resources you have like people are using them yeah, stands they, they are, for the future. They are the heroes we need, or the heroes we deserve, but they're the yeah. heroes we need right now. Yeah, totally. All right, guys. We're all exhausted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think we'll call it a day from there. Yeah. Um, anything you guys want to shout out before we, before we officially close this down? Um, if you go to a protest, please get tested afterwards uh yeah i know that garcetti closed closing closed open testing sites to punish us but they're reopened now <laughs> all right that's a good note to end on uh love you guys stay safe out there see y'all to, uh, to all you listeners we'll see you see you next week hopefully <laughs> bye Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.